The scripture this morning is from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Flowers wither, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Lord, we thank you that that is true and that you have given us your word, and we just pray now that as we consider this part of it, that you, Holy Spirit, who inspired it and who dwells in our hearts, would do with it what we need, what would glorify you the most. And some of us need to be challenged, some of us need to be encouraged, some of us need to be reminded of your love, but whatever it is that each of us need, Holy Spirit, would you apply it to our hearts as we consider your word? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, history lover that I am, on Monday morning, September 25th, 1780, General George Washington, along with his aide, Colonel Alexander Hamilton, and the rest of his staff, were riding towards West Point, an American fortress along the Hudson River in New York. Washington was coming to inspect that fort, but first he was going to have breakfast at the home of the fort's commander. When Washington arrived, though, he was told that the commander wasn't there, that he had left about a half an hour earlier to go to the fort and to conduct final preparations, but would be back shortly. The fort's commander was General Benedict Arnold, uh, but he had left and wasn't there, so um, Arnold hadn't returned either by the time the breakfast was over, so Washington left for the fort, thinking he would find Arnold there. But when he got to West Point, Benedict Arnold wasn't there either. So Washington went ahead and carried out the inspection without him. Only hours later, when a courier arrived with documents captured from a British spy, did the truth come out. Arnold had been only hours away from surrendering the fort, West Point, to the British. He had fled for his life when he found out about Washington's untimely arrival. America had been betrayed. As one author put it, Washington, his face betraying the sadness, anger, and shock of this most recent revelation, turned to Lafayette and asked, whom can we trust now? I think that's how many Christians in America feel today. Betrayal, surprise, surprise that our nation, which began largely, though not entirely, with many leaving Europe to pursue religious freedom, and that continued for so long with the Christian worldview, now sees us, sees Christians, as the bad guys. But the truth is that now bygone era was the exception rather than the rule. History shows 
humanity's inhumanity to one another much more than our love towards one another. And Christians, of course, have experienced it throughout the ages. Our enemy, the devil, as Peter points out in chapter 5, verse 8, next week's passage, our enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And that's why we've named this series that we're going through Hope in a Hostile World. But it's also called Hope in a Hostile World, and that's what we're going to talk about today. In today's passage, Peter is talking very specifically about suffering for Christ, suffering for the name of Christ. And our outline today is pretty simple. We've been talking about who has the most points in their sermons lately. I don't know. I got three. That's all there is. But anyhow, uh, first off, Peter says, do not be surprised that we suffer for Christ, but instead to rejoice. And then thirdly, commit yourselves to God and continue to do good. And I think those need to go together. We'll get to that. So don't be surprised when it happens, brothers and sisters, but rejoice instead, commit yourselves to God and continue to do good. So let's dive into that. Uh, First off, Peter says, don't be surprised. Uh, Verse 12, he says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says we shouldn't be surprised when this happens because Jesus told us about it. He said this would happen. So if we pay attention, uh, we're going to realize that's the case. Here's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, you would love it as it, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. In other words, we're in good company. Uh, Peter talks in chapter 5, verse 1, that he witnessed himself the sufferings of Christ, which, of course, we talk about this week of all weeks, Holy Week, with Easter coming. Uh, and, And Jesus' words are true. Throughout history, we see how others have suffered for the name of Christ. And just a few examples, Polycarp from the first century, Bishops Ridley and Latimer in the Reformation, Corey Tenboom during World War II, the Christians who were beheaded on those beaches by ISIS, and the abuse you've endured for praying across from the Latrobe Clinic and maybe the pressure you've experienced at corporate human resource departments. But before we go any further, I want to clarify or join Peter in clarifying what Peter is not talking about when he uh, talks about suffering for Christ. He tells us in verse 15 uh, what he's not talking about. Uh, In verse 15, he says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. Well, now those first three are pretty obvious. I hope no one is going to count, you know, if you go out and murder this afternoon, don't call that suffering for Jesus if you go to jail. Okay, are we all good on that? (laughs) It's pretty obvious, I think. Uh, I sort of feel like the Sesame Street stuff, you know, these three things are together, but one's different. Uh, You know, uh, murderer, thief, any other kind of criminal. We're probably good on that, but, or even as a meddler, says Peter, Uh, even as a meddler, that's not suffering for Christ either. Um, The word that Peter uses there, it's the only time it's found in the New Testament. It's a a combined word, uh, two words combined together. It literally means to rule in other people's lives, ruling in other people's lives. Peter doesn't want us to mistake suffering for Christ uh, or suffering for being rude, obnoxious, meddling as suffering for Jesus. Uh, I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards, one of his sermons, Charity and Its Fruits. He says, how little occasion there is for us to pass our sentence on others with respect to their state, qualifications, or actions that do not concern us. Our great concern is with ourselves. 
It is of infinite consequence to us that we have a good estate before God, that we are possessed of good qualities and principles, and that we behave ourselves well and act with right aims and for right ends. But it is a minor matter to us how it is with others, and there is little need of our censure being passed, even if it were deserved, which we cannot be sure of, for the business is in the hands of God, who is infinitely more fit to see to it than we can be, and there is a day appointed for his decision. Brothers and sisters, we don't always have a good track record in regard to these sorts of things. Uh, we're often meddling for Jesus too often. Uh, when people in a Samaritan village did not welcome Jesus, uh, Jesus was traveling from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and they passed through the Samaritan village, they didn't welcome him. And James and John, not Peter for once, you know, Jesus, uh, Peter's normally the one with foot and mouth disease. This time it was uh, James and John. But they asked Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? In other words, let's put them through a fiery ordeal, maybe. But Jesus not only denied their request, he rebuked them for their attitudes. And since they were rebuked by Jesus, they couldn't call it suffering for Jesus by any stretch. God makes clear through Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. Of course, none of this means being soft on sin or excusing sin, but it does mean our objective is to tell people about Jesus so that they will come to love him. They will come to love him and turn to him in faith and repentance and let him begin their work, his work rather, in their hearts and lives. So, not talking about suffering for Jesus as in when you murder or meddle. But let's get back to what he is talking about, uh, and it's first off to rejoice. To rejoice, says Peter, and we want to say, are you kidding? <laughs> and Peter isn't kidding. He says we should rejoice when we suffer for the name of Christ. We see here in verses uh, 14 and 16 that suffering for Jesus gives us assurance that we belong to Christ. If you're suffering for Jesus, it's probably likely that you do belong to him and that God's spirit rests on us when we do this. His spirit rests on us and he goes through the valley with us. And in fact, it's his spirit that enables us to go through the valleys of suffering. And verse 13 in particular, I think is profound. When we suffer for Christ, we are participating in the sufferings of Christ. Participating in the sufferings of Christ. Uh, profound, it seems to me. Now, our suffering doesn't uh, redeem anybody. You know, that was what Christ did on the cross. We don't add to that in any way, shape, or form. But God can use our suffering in redemptive ways in the lives of people around us. More on that later. In any case, to the degree you identify with Christ in suffering, you will be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I remember this week in particular, since we're looking at a letter of Peter and going into Holy Week, uh, think of Peter, uh, what he did on the night of Jesus' betrayal. He so confidently said, Lord, I am willing to die with you, to go to death even with you, uh, no matter what happens, I'm there with you. Yet within a few hours, he dodged it all by denying even knowing Christ, didn't he? We'll talk about that on the Monday Thursday service. But later... When Peter and the apostles are arrested by the Sanhedrin for continuing to preach the name of Christ, they left rejoicing. They left rejoicing. And 
that just blows our mind. As someone was talking to me between services in America, we do everything we can to avoid suffering, right? But Peter rejoiced. The apostles rejoiced. I can't help but believe that for Peter especially, he was so rejoicing because this time I did stand with Christ. This time I did not deny his name and was happy to pay the price. Peter, I think, had come to realize that suffering with Jesus was better by far than avoiding suffering by denying him. So again, those who suffer should not be surprised but rejoice. And then let's go to the last point there. Commit yourselves to God and continue to do good. As verse 19 says, So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Um, so as I said, these, uh, this is a, a, a both and kind of thing. You want to keep them together. It's sort of like uh, Reese's peanut butter cups. You got to have the chocolate and the peanut butter together for it to be Reese's. And I love Reese's, so you got to have them both. And in this case, you have to have them both. Uh, it, it's a both and kind of thing, all in the same verse, because it, it's crucial because the church, I think, has uh, all too often ex- emphasized one at the expense of the other. And we'll talk about that in a bit too. So let's talk first though about commit yourselves to God and what that means. What does it look like for us as exiles in a hostile world to commit ourselves to God? I'm not sure there is a better example or several examples actually of what that looks like than Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach uh, in the book of Daniel. And several examples, but I really love the first chapter. In the first chapter, you see Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, taking Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I just love saying those three names, by the way. Don't you? Uh, They're just so cool. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Say that three times real fast. Anyway, he takes all of those guys uh, and many other people from Israel, and they get exiled to Babylon. But he enrolls these four and others, I'm sure, into the civil service school of Babylon. They are going to be trained in the language and the literature of the Babylonians that they might serve the king in his palace. I find this fascinating. It seems that the Lord is okay with us being knowledgeable about false beliefs. Obviously, there was a lot of false beliefs in the Babylonian system, their religion and all sorts of things. Being knowledgeable about this wasn't a problem, apparently. These four had to learn about it in order to serve in the king's palace, and they did. Similarly, Moses was taught in the culture of Egypt and all of their behaviors and such and served there. And Paul quoted... uh, When he was preaching to the philosophers in Athens, he quoted from pagan poets that they would identify with. Maybe that includes knowing about certain policies and given corporations as well. There's nothing wrong with knowing about them. But of course, remaining committed to God means that you're going to pay careful attention to what you're learning so you don't get sucked in yourself. It takes knowing the Word of God thoroughly and the God of the Word personally. Trusting Him, therefore, to pull you through that while you become knowledgeable in it, you're not taken in by it. And that's uh, something else that uh, we see here. Commitment to God also means that when you're called upon to deny God or to disobey God in any way, you draw the line. And that's exactly what we see Daniel doing. Daniel refused to defile himself with the royal food and wine. You know, they had very uh, specific dietary laws in the Old Testament. And when they were called upon by the Babylonians to violate that, Daniel said, ain't going to do it. But notice how he did it. I find this fascinating again. He didn't call the, uh, the guy who was supervising him and teaching him a godless pagan or anything else like that, any other judgmental thing. He simply asked for permission 
not to eat the royal food and defile himself in that way. When the official said that, well, if I do that, Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's going to have my head. I can't do that. And if you know about Nebuchadnezzar, he would have his head. You know, he did those kinds of things. So, but Daniel understood, but he nevertheless persisted. He said, let's put it to the test for 10 days. Um, you know, the concern was that if I don't feed you what the, the king's table is, you're not going to be as healthy looking as everybody else. Nebuchadnezzar will kill me. Daniel said, let's put it to the test. Ten days, I'll eat what we normally eat. You feed everybody else the same. And you'll see that we're just as well off, if not better, than everybody else. They put it to the test. They looked great. The official agreed. Indeed, all was well. So let's sum up what commitment to God as exiles in a hostile world looks like. Whoops, one more click. Uh, show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That's chapter 2, verse 17 of 1 Peter. But when honoring the emperor or the king or the government or your corporation or whatever means disobeying God, we draw the line and we obey God instead, of course. Yet our civil disobedience is just that, civil. <laughs> uh, not meddling not obnoxious, etc. So, so as I said, though, we commit ourselves to God and continue to do good. As I said earlier, these two things must be taken together as one response. It's so vital to be a both and because the church has tended, uh, in recent history especially, to emphasize one or the other, either falling into the trap of being very committed to God but not doing any good or doing a lot of good but not really committed to God. Here's what happens in our current context, I believe, and this is uh, a quote from Table Talk. As uh, Matt said, we have the uh, uh, Table Talk magazines and other things out in the foyer. There, this month's issue, the April issue, has a ton of tremendous articles about Martin Luther. You want to pick it up. But here's what a, a past Table Talk said about this problem. The social gospel movement, under the inspiration of theological liberalism, downplayed sin and reduced Christianity to feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, and other acts of social justice. There was a justifiable backlash against this movement in the churches and an exodus of people who affirmed the essential truths of the Christian faith. Unfortunately, some theological conservatives were so afraid of falling prey to the social gospel that works of charity ranked at the bottom of their priority list, if they were done at all. Those who neglected acts of social welfare for fear of looking like liberals were guilty of throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, R.C. Sproul uh, is uh, the guy behind Table Talk. He's passed away, certainly. But uh, I can't help but believe if he, that he wrote this. He loved the, the little phrase, throw out the baby with the bathwater. So I don't know if he wrote it or not. But uh, in any case, they throw out the baby with the bathwater. He goes on. John Calvin writes, The law is kept only when men are just and kind and true towards each other. For thus they testify that they love and fear God and give proper and sufficient evidence of sincere piety. Commitment to justice, mercy, and faithfulness demonstrates commitment to Christ. Thus our care for the poor and oppressed must be as evident as our concern for doctrine. What sacrifices are you making to help the poor and marginalized? So brothers and sisters here at Stonebridge, it's vital that we continue doing the good that we've been doing in our community, blessing our community showing them the love of God, to continue showing up at Latrobe, to continue such cool events that got rained out yesterday, unfortunately, but the burgers and basketball. <laughs> uh, as someone put it, we've got so many neighbors coming to our parking lot to play basketball, we need to get them in a little farther, and that, that's an attempt to do that. We'll uh, do that later, though. 
to continue supporting ministries like Camino, Safe Families, Life Recovery Bible Studies, and so many other things. And why? Because of verse 17, to back up a little bit in our passage. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? In other words, all of this has eternal consequences for us and for everyone else we come in contact with. Eternal consequences. Now, suffering for Jesus is no fun, of course, right? That's why it's called suffering. <laughs> but listen to what can come from it. Uh, this is a story from uh, a, someone who's a member in our church. He told me about this about a month or so ago about a friend of his. Uh, and this woman was, uh, had applied for a job with uh, Deloitte, a very powerful financial institution. She felt she was highly qualified for the job. She wanted it really badly. And she felt the interview that she had went really well. But then she finds out that they wanted her to travel an awful lot. But she led a discipleship group uh, there in the city that met on Wednesday nights. And she was committed to it. And so she said, well, I'm, I'm happy to travel, but I need to come back on Wednesday nights for this discipleship group. I'll pay the, for the travel myself to go back and forth to do it at my own expense. She didn't get the job. Now, that was 25 years ago. But recently, a man who was a part of her interview got in touch with her from 25 years ago. He told her that she was by far the most qualified candidate, but that they didn't hire her because of her commitment to that discipleship group. But he wanted her to know that just two months prior, primarily, or at least majorly because of the commitment she showed to Christ and wanting to minister, he had become a Christian just two months prior. There were other things that happened, of course, but from 25 years ago, her willingness to put Christ and this ministry ahead of her own personal advancement was one of the many things that God used to bring this man to faith. That's what gives us hope in a hostile world, my friends. So brothers and sisters, uh, I would just say to you that if you're struggling with how to respond to some fiery trial in your own life, responding how to, uh, wondering how to respond to suffering in your context, let us know. Let us know. There's no way to cover every possible scenario uh, in a sermon, though I hope we've at least pointed the way here. But let's figure out together how to rejoice, how to be committed to God, and to do good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as your scriptures, scriptures say, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and then sat down at your right hand. Help us, Lord, to consider him who endured so much opposition from sinful men that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you were willing to go to the cross. And as you did so, you even prayed to your Father for those who had nailed you there that they would be forgiven. Help us to have the same mentality. Help us to have a heart for, after your own heart for the lost around us, for the community around us, that we might glorify you. Father, sometimes it can be very difficult. We know there are trials around us. Our devil is still roaring, seeking whom he may devour. But Lord, help us to realize that you are with us and that we bear the name of Christ, that we might rejoice and be found faithful. 
We can only do that as we follow your example and are empowered by you. So we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.